This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. It is, Bertrand Russell said, a cold, unfathomable, lifeless abyss. It's something most of us have felt at some point in our lives, and particularly perhaps during the past two years. It is loneliness, and with me to talk about it is the philosopher Kimberly Brownlee, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. She's joining us from Canada. Kimberly, welcome to the bunker. Thank you, Rose. Good to be with you. You published a book during the pandemic called Being Sure of Each Other. It's an essay on social rights and freedoms. Unusually for an academic work, the title is an allusion to Winnie the Pooh. How did that come about? It's a lovely story. Winnie the Pooh and Piglet are lost in the woods and Piglet takes up Pooh's paw and whispers Pooh. And Pooh says, yes, Piglet. And Piglet says, nothing. I just wanted to be sure of you. And I love that moment because the just, it sounds like this is a small thing, being sure of someone, when in fact, this is the most important need that we have to be sure of someone, to be socially connected. The social psychologist, Matthew Lieberman, he says our social needs are needs with a capital N. We thirst for connection. Yes, because your central argument is that when we think about human rights historically, we've neglected social rights. What are social rights? So social rights, they are typically packaged under the heading of socioeconomic rights. And the most well-known of those rights are economic welfare rights. So the right to be free from poverty, the right to health, the right to education, the right to have a shelter. And then sort of the the poorest of the poor cousins in that list are the right not to be denied access to people, you know, the the right not to be incidentally isolated, the right certainly not to be put in solitary confinement. We, We are beginning to recognize how horrible that experience is. But many of our social rights outside the family are not given due recognition, either in legal scholarship, legal practice, or in theory. Uh, And socioeconomic rights as a group also tend to be the poor cousins of a narrow set of civil and political rights. So the right to vote, the right to due process, those rights have very strong legal foundations. They're they're, they're well recognized, they're enumerated at length, they're examined, and, and states are held to be immediately accountable to protecting those rights. These other rights tend to be viewed more in 
in somewhat aspirational terms that states should move toward the progressive realization of these rights, when in fact, these ones are of paramount importance. Why do you think they have been overlooked? Is it because they are hard to legislate for, hard to define, hard to ensure? Or is it because people haven't acknowledged their importance? So I think one possible reason is that we tend to ignore the basics, the things that we sometimes can take for granted. So until fairly recently, we've been able to take breathable air for granted. There is no enumerated right in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to breathable air. The United Nations is now, there's a big push, there's recognition of the fundamental environmental rights we have, but we've tended not to focus on that one because it wasn't under threat. Now, with respect to social rights, I I think one reason for their neglect is they tend to be viewed as expensive, difficult to claim. How do I assert a social right to be included, to be recognized, to have friendly treatment? Now, of course, civil and political rights are also expensive. The right to vote is expensive. A state must have a well-designed functioning apparatus in place for us to have a meaningful right to vote. So the expensive argument doesn't really fly, but that's the one often invoked as to, to explain why social rights aren't as readily recognized as rights. Another possible reason is that the development of human rights as a, as a norm, as a framework in the, in the mid-20th century following the end of the Second World War, Eleanor Roosevelt, the U.S. first ambassador to the United Nations, working to developed the UDHR, the push was to protect people against oppression. The thought was that we need a document, we need an agreement on what basic rights human beings have in order to protect peoples from oppressive governments, authoritarian governments. But there, I think the the approach was myopic, that there wasn't due recognition given to the fact that the most potent weapon an oppressive government can wield is your social rights. So separating families, disappearing people, that's how you break people down. Let's talk about how we think about isolation and separating people, because the concept of self-isolation is quite a new one to most people. It's something that's appeared during the pandemic. It's probably not completely new because there have always been, especially in religious communities, people who chose to isolate themselves. But Social isolation, when when we separate people deliberately from society, not because there's a pandemic, but for other reasons, is not new, is it? No. So, so the idea of self-isolation, it actually aligns with an older understanding of the term loneliness. So in, in the past, loneliness was used to mean aloneness or, or solitude, that there are there are practices of, of retreating, of living as a hermit, of finding indeed a, a way to be social through learning to be with yourself. And some of the approaches we have to punishment now are a legacy of that idea that, that solitude can bring wisdom. Solitude can bring an ability to be more social. And so, so you know, the, the use of long-term prison sentences and, and solitude in prison, isolation in prison, the thought was that then a person would reflect 
on how they behaved and they would learn to be more social. The evidence is that if you're put in solitary confinement, you start to break down mentally and physically. You become self-abusive and depressed, despondent, suicidal. This is not a place in which to try to learn to be more social. On a sort of micro level, we do it as well. I've just thought that one of the punishments I use for my kids is to send them to their room. And I'm not quite sure why I'm doing that, except perhaps that they're annoying me so much that I can't take their presence anymore. But there is a there is an idea that they will somehow learn something from it. But probably that is wrong, isn't it? Well, it's interesting. Timeouts and the threat of the bedroom. Sometimes we need to regroup. We all need to breathe. So a momentary stepping back and, and in, you know, in the moment, it can only be an order to a child. You, know, you, you go there, I go here, and we all catch our breath. That is not the same thing as exiling someone, expelling someone, putting them in isolation in a way where they're essentially denied the chance to hope. You know, the child hopefully will be told, you know, you know, three minutes, you can come back, five minutes, you can come back, that it's not you must wait impotently until someone comes to you. And, and that is the condition of the person in solitary confinement. They must wait and hope against hope that someone will come to them. Yes, one of the things that I suppose has made self-isolation just about bearable during the pandemic for a lot of people is the knowledge that they have you know, however many more days until it's over, or that there is an end to the lockdown. It seems to help us enormously to have a an end. But let's talk about the pandemic and the choices that the government and wider society made to preserve human life. You described our treatment of the old as abysmal during the pandemic, didn't you? So I think there's several reasons to, to think that. One is that many older people living in residential care facilities have been sitting ducks waiting for the pandemic to come to them. And indeed, in Canada, the majority of people who've died from COVID-19 have been older people in residential care homes. Quebec, in particular, has a lot of work to do to remedy its residential care facility system. One broader complaint about institutionalizing older people is that often this is just a warehousing. There are various reasons families don't have older relatives live with them, but private residential facilities, profit-driven facilities, tend to do the bare minimum, and not even that sometimes, to ensure that the people in their care are leading rich, meaningful, full lives. There was a documentary in 2016 in the UK called The, the Age of Loneliness. And one of, the, one of the women interviewed in that documentary, her name was Olive. She was in her 90s and she had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And she said, you know, I live on Lonely Street. I, I wait in my room in my residential facility and I, I hope the care worker will come by. So it's not just governments and not just residential facilities that have a responsibility to ensure older people are treated properly, treated lovingly. It is also family members. Some states take a draconian approach to this. So in, in China, adult children have a legal duty to visit and engage with their aging parents. Now, we might have many reasons not to opt for that. We prefer kindness and care and, and love amongst families to be given voluntarily. But if the other alternative is that the person won't have any social contact, will be utterly neglected, then families have a duty to step up. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We heard lots of stories during the pandemic and we continue to hear them of people who made difficult moral judgments. I don't know how much you know about the what is called Partygate in the UK at the moment, but for many people it has revived horrible memories of having to make very, very difficult decisions about whether they should see their elderly relatives or not and break lockdown and so on. And whether they had a duty to comfort someone who was distressed, for example, or whether it was more important to stick to the rules and know that they had, in the eyes of the law, at least done the right thing. How do we balance our duties to the person in front of us, or not in front of us, but who we know is there, who may be extremely lonely, with our our duties to society as a whole? That's an excellent question. In my other research, I have written a defense of civil disobedience. So I don't take the mere fact that something is the law as uh, the overriding reason to do something. We have to look at the character and the consequences of our conduct. Now, when we are dealing with a public health crisis, when we're trying to coordinate our efforts, and as individual citizens, we don't have all the information that we might need to make a good judgment about whether this law is a good law, we then owe some deference to hopefully those making judgments in good faith to defer. So, so the party gate, I, you know, I fully appreciate why people are enraged by the information that's come out about you know, the events in Downing Street that would seem to say there's a rule for everybody else and then a rule or indeed no rule for those in Downing Street, that somehow the, the rules don't apply. When it comes to making choices for your own family, you know, I think there, there can be reasons to step just outside the law. You know, we do sometimes do this in the, in the name of necessity. We say, you know, I had to run the red light in order to get my family member to the hospital. I had to strike out in self-defense. There, there are sometimes more important things than the fact it's the law, but what's going on in Partygate was nowhere near that territory. I want to talk to you too about technology and how it changes how we think about self-isolation. A few weeks ago, I was struck by a poster on the underground of a young person curled up on their sofa with their mobile and the caption said, self-isolating again. And it probably won't surprise you to find that the service that they were advertising was not the Samaritans, for example, or a helpline, but it was a home delivery app. And it made me wonder, have we turned away from difficult questions about how to preserve people's social rights by assuming that the new tech we have, Netflix, social media, things brought to your home on request, 
is an adequate substitute for that. Right. So yes, we are we risk becoming socially malnourished, socially starving and not entirely aware of it. So we defer a lot to people's own judgment about how to lead their lives. We should do that. Experiments and living are good making choices about your your own life that is an important source of autonomy but there are limits so if someone were to fast to the point where their you know, their organs start to deteriorate and they're not no longer competent to decide whether to continue to live like this then we have a duty to intervene to ensure that they have the option to you know, to recover and to think again how they want to lead their life. So too, when it comes to our social choices, that we can adapt to constraints, we can start to rely on surrogates, and we can lose track of whether what we are placing value in actually has value. You know, someone who is chronically lonely begins to find social situations threatening. They begin to become less competent at initiating social contact. They begin to judge social contact as less valuable. And so at, at some point, it's certainly permissible and perhaps required to intervene in order to enable a person to make better judgment about what is in their best interests. So I resort to technology. Uh, Sh- Sherry Turkle wrote a, a, a book a few years ago, Together Alone, that we are, you know, we've all retreated into our own little bubble of tech surrogacy. And there's certain skills we no longer have. You know, dating has become much harder for the current generation than it was, you know, for me 20 years ago, that being willing to put yourself out there face to face to get off the phone and actually try to talk to someone that these are much more challenging skills now than they used to be. Teenagers are growing up slower now than they used to be. You're seeing behavior in 16-year-olds that previously you saw in 13-year-olds in terms of their ability to navigate the social world of of early romantic life and and sexual contact. So we're losing a lot in relying too heavily on technology. And the psychologists say that the jury's very much still out on whether a Zoom call is any kind of approximation to a face-to-face conversation. There's so much you miss when you're on the Zoom call. You know, you, you're not in the same environment. You don't know how warm or cold the other person is. You know, they have a, there's some reaction they have to some bit of their environment and, you know, you're not in the same place. You don't know what they're experiencing. So our technology might get better, um, but certainly as it is, it's very questionable whether this is an adequate substitute or even a you know, vague approximation of what we need socially. Yeah, I was having precisely this discussion with a friend last week over a cocktail. And I was saying, I, I cannot, I, I loathe Zoom calls, the fewer of them I can do, the better. She said, oh, I quite, you know, I quite enjoy some of them, and I do. And it did strike me that the fact that we were in person talking, whether we would actually be capable of having the same conversation over Zoom at all. But you argue that loneliness is a moral injustice. If we aren't going to have formalised social rights, and to be realistic, we probably aren't anytime soon in most societies. What as a society could we do to fight that moral injustice more effectively? So if I were to force myself to be very precise, loneliness as such is not uh, the moral injustice. Rather, it's being forced to live in conditions that are highly conducive to loneliness. So so I think one thing I'd want to stress is that we don't have a right not to be lonely. Surely not when loneliness is understood the way psychologists understand it now. The, the dominant understanding is that loneliness is a perception. 
that you perceive yourself as being socially isolated. And I have no right that my perceptions be a certain way, just as I have no right to be healthy. I have a right to health, I have a right to health care, but I don't have a right to guaranteed success when it comes to my health. Same with loneliness, I don't have a right to guaranteed success in my perceptions that I perceive myself as socially connected. Now, there are certain kinds of conditions that make it more, more likely that I will perceive myself as isolated. One of them crops up again and again in, in qualitative studies, interviews with people who are deeply lonely. One of them is their reality and their perception that they are not needed. So someone who you know, is denied access to other people or, or someone who is socially integrated, but only in a passive receiving way, they have few opportunities to be useful, to be needed. And that's where the moral injustice lies, in my view. And so, so this story, you know, we can trace back all the way to the beginning in, in childhood, that a child who is raised in a way that leaves them with impoverished social abilities. So think of children who, who grew up in the orphanages in Romania under the Ceausescu regime, that they were robbed of the nurturing they needed to become caregivers as adults. Those children are now young adults and they are unable to be practical caregivers of other people. They're also unable to make efforts to sustain the connections they have. And, and so that denies them many opportunities to be of use to other people, to know that they are valued and wanted. And so you then move from childhood into adulthood and assuming someone you know, was given the nurturing they needed to develop social abilities, there's then the question of, are they given adequate opportunities to be needed? And there's certain ways we, we segregate and we stunt people's opportunities to be needed. So immigration, separating families, often holding men separate from women and children, in prison, you know, denying people access to their family, prison officials know that the biggest carrot and stick they can wield over someone in prison is their family access. So those are those are those are spaces in which people are stunted or denied opportunities to be useful. And and then there's sort of the long-term maintenance of connections once we have them. How is our society set up? Does it actually foster or hinder us? in being in our relationships. I think the points you make about men is particularly interesting because you argue, don't you, that men, we create a situation where men are not regarded as social contributors in the same way that women are. How do we do that? So uh, some of it happens in, in the courtroom. So um, magistrates in the UK, uh, if they have discretion over whether to assign a custodial sentence, will often avoid a custodial sentence when the person before them is a woman or a mother specifically, but they won't make those same efforts in the case of a father. In, uh, in NHS hospitals, uh, the night after a baby is born, the man is not allowed to stay with his partner. Men in the UK are given only two weeks parental leave in their own right. You know, the rest is at the discretion of their partner. So there's little signals in many places that say men are not valued as much as social contributors, certainly within the family. We are social contributors outside of the family as well, in our political circles, in our religious groups, in our professional lives. But the key site in which we are able to be social contributors is the family. And in that space, men are still not valued equally. 
Do you think the pandemic has made us a bit more empathetic towards, for example, the way that society treats prisoners? Could that help to change the way we think? Is there any evidence that you can see that it's that it's changing the way we think about loneliness? I, I don't yet see evidence that there's greater empathy toward people who are coercively detained, coercively isolated. You know, maybe that, that conversation is starting to rumble. There are some greater sensitivities, and hopefully they're not momentary, but it was, you know, it's been lovely to watch some of the, you know, out- outpourings of social overtures over the past two years. The initial stage of the pandemic, there was you know, the, the the claps for healthcare workers and the you know, many businesses making their supplies freely available, sharing of information, making the children's reading books freely available during the the lockdown and the school closures people offering teaching online free and 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 so there's a there's a there's a very wonderful sharing outpouring of support and kindness that has ebbed away to some extent but i think we've perhaps become more appreciative of little goods little social goods that we took for granted you know, we've had fewer smiles with strangers on the street. Uh, you know, we're less likely to have that brief micro connection with a non-associate right now. But we're also maybe learning to you know, read eyes a bit better. The people who can spot a spot a schmise above the above the face mask, and maybe then there's a bit more receptivity to you know, women who are wearing a full face covering, that that doesn't have to be a barrier to interaction. So that demographic may feel less isolated because in a way we're all, you know, we're all equally situated in that respect right now. So I'd, I'd say it's, it's not yet settled what the full effect of this will be, but there have been some heartening moments along the way. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Roz. Good to talk to you. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you liked this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Roz Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.